Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. You're now tuning in to the second part of a two-part episode about the Australian sect Outreach International. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I would highly recommend you do so now, otherwise the rest of this episode probably won't make much sense. Before we continue, a content warning. This two-part episode deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours, as well as references to suicide and there's a little coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. When I left you in part one, we were talking about OI meetings where members sat in a circle, shared details about their lives, and challenged each other about their decisions. This was a development that happened after the scattering of the 1990s, where people either felt that they had a calling to move somewhere in the world, or were told to do so by someone else. Some believe this was the point at which things became much worse for those in the church. members were told often that if you are comfortable, you should be uncomfortable. When Laura was in year nine, living with her parents, her brothers and her sister in Adelaide, their pastor told them that he felt that they should move to Sydney. She says people weren't given reasons for these decisions, just that leaders felt it's what God wanted for them, that it would be good for them and get them out of their comfort zone. Laura's mother didn't want to move her children during their crucial high school years, and was challenged by the group for her resistance. So the family went. Starting her new school in Sydney, Laura had no idea what to tell the other kids when they asked why her family had come over from Adelaide. I'm 14, I'm like, well, how do I explain that some man told my family to move? That's the state that we were supposed to live in, this uncomfortable feeling all the time, even to the point where I used to pick up notes off the ground, and that's my little random little thing I did that I liked doing, just little love notes or whatever I'd find. And my pastor told me, are you getting something out of that? Because it must bring me happiness and joy. And he challenged me on that and 
didn't want me to do that. So it's it was just a constant state of anything that made you happy had to be removed from your life. After university, Laura moved to Melbourne to live as her parents were overseas at the time. As a single woman, she had to live in share housing with other young members and in certain areas where the OI community was located. This was the same in Sydney, in Toronto, wherever she went. The areas weren't ever in the inner city where she would have most liked to live. Fortunately, she quite liked her housemates in Melbourne and was there in her early 20s when her parents returned to Sydney and her dad was diagnosed with cancer. Laura's father Robert had by this stage been in and out of the church for his own various reasons and was out at this point in time. Laura approached her pastor, who happened to be the same pastor that had moved her family from Sydney to Adelaide when she was in high school. And I say, I want to move to Sydney. Dad's got cancer. And he said, no. I wasn't allowed to. Like, physically not allowed to cross the border. Like, I think about it now, I'm like, this is crazy. So for months, I'd just be in tears in my room and I'd just be like, I can't move. You can get a sense of Laura's turmoil at the time through some diary entries that she wrote. Dated around the winter of 2001, Recently I spoke to my pastor about moving to Sydney. I thought I had his okay and so went about getting ready to move, but since then I'd gotten heaps of challenges from him and the region about my motives, questioning whether they are pure. I have found this really hard. I feel like nobody wants me to be living closer to my family ever again. I am doomed. It's been five years since I lived in the same city. Such a long time. Things have changed. Can't people see that? I know this sounds bad, but I feel untrusted. But I know I haven't been totally open, as I feel if I express my real reasons to go to Sydney, they are to be living closer to my brother and sister, that it won't be acceptable. It's not spiritual, godly, and all that crap. It's just simply a desire of mine, be it from my heart or not. But I feel it's from my heart because it seems so steady and clear. I can't seem to shake it. I suppose it doesn't have to be such a big deal. As long as I know I follow my heart and am being open and live in faith and God, that's all. That's all I need to do. I asked how Laura's parents felt about this situation. I remember having chats with them, like, I really want to move. And my mum would say, I know. And she obviously wanted me to move too. But she's like, but, you know, you just got to obey. <laughs> so we just obeyed. People knew that I struggled. There was, like, meetings and meetings where everyone challenged me. Why do you want to move to Sydney? Are you just running away from your relationships in Melbourne? No. There's one simple thing. I want to move to Sydney, be with my family. My dad has cancer. Blah. There's nothing more to it, right? They've got to find layers and layers. And so it's like one of them was, yes, I'm running away from relationships with my flatmates. I'm running to the comfort of family, so that's not good. So you should be in Melbourne because your family is too comfortable for you. You love your family too much, so you should be in Melbourne. It was just like whatever. So like they take whichever way you look, they'll go, no, it's this. You look this way, no, it's that. So you kind of got got nowhere to go. You're, You're trapped. Sometime later, a new pastor came to Melbourne and Laura was finally allowed to return to Sydney to be with her family. And you know what, that was a great moment because I was allowed to go. But when I look back, I was allowed to go? Like, as fucked as it is to say I wasn't allowed to go. <laughs> Sorry, I should be swearing. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, the fact that it took another man, like one man to say you can't for a certain amount of months, and then another man to let me go, 
it's either both of them are dumb, you know. There's so many stories like that. I could really sympathise with Laura's story in a lot of ways, as I was living on the other side of the world when my stepfather was diagnosed with cancer, and I decided that I needed to move back to Sydney to spend as much time with him and my family as I could. The idea of anyone telling me that I should question my motives in doing this is honestly pretty astounding to me, and I can only imagine how much difficulty I would have had with such a restriction on my life. And then so after meetings and meetings of all that torture, the other pastor who initially was like, no, you can't go, his wife said to me, oh, we never said you couldn't go. And I was sort of quite ropeable. And I was like, yes, you did. Like, and, you know, and we had a bit of a bit of a fight. So on the way home in the car, I was screaming and I was driving my flatmates home and some guys and I was like off my rocker because it was just, they just twisted everything. Like I spent months crying myself to sleep for not being able to move back home and see my family. And then they just go, oh, we never said you couldn't. You just didn't take our love correctly or whatever. And, you know, you just, you, so it was still my fault, my fault for not understanding how they loved me through this process of telling them or whatever. So I'm in the car having just confronted my pastor and his wife and they're like 70 or something. <laughs> and, um, and I just was driving the car home and I just was crying and screaming and my mate, he was great. He was like, I'm driving car, <laughs> get out, get in the passenger seat. But they all, the young people said, we all feel the same. And I was like, why don't you say something? No one says anything. The ways that Laura felt controlled by her involvement with OI were a lot to do with freedom of movement, even when she was an adult, nearly 30. You can't really move anywhere, and I wanted to move to New York and I wasn't allowed to, and I got challenged for that, and then, you know. So there's, my life has a path that it's taken. It's been pushed in a certain way, you know what I mean? I would have moved to Sydney earlier. I would have moved to New York for a, you know, a year or two. I would have done all these things that I didn't do because I wasn't allowed to do. So who knows what life, you know, in that respect, like what could have happened. <laughs> and there were huge time commitments to OI activities, which were social as well as the Sunday and Wednesday meetings. Friendships with people outside of the church suffered as a result and spending time alone was frowned upon. When I like to spend time on my own instead of going out with the movies with everybody or doing something like that and I'd be prefer to just spend a night by myself playing my guitar or whatever I was just branded as like the selfish one who didn't socialize and didn't like to do stuff and even when with other people and it was just this really bad stigma of like you wanted you just couldn't be yourself if yourself was that person who wants to be alone sometimes there was just this immense pressure to have to communicate and socialise and do everything with this group of people. And a night on your own, just even though you liked it, well, I liked it or whatever, would be like, I can't feel guilty. I know I'm doing something wrong. And a good example is when I lived in Canada, my um, flatmates, there was a group of girls I lived with and there was a group of guys, like four girls and four guys in these two different houses and they'd socialise and stuff. Tuesday night was burrito night. And I was like, mm, I wanted to join a um, songwriters association thing that was like um, in the city. And that was like Tuesday nights, once a fortnight or something like that. So I didn't, I wasn't always able to go. And I got challenged from the, the young people in the community for like not turning up to burrito night. 
it's just people getting together eating burritos on a Tuesday night and I ha- I have to. I have no choice. I can't not do it. Like maybe I want to sometime, but every Tuesday I might not want to. And <laughs> used to alternate between our house and the guy's house. So if it was at my house and you know I just want to be on my I want to be in my room and read a book or listen to music or play my guitar or something, I couldn't. Another aspect of relationships became a huge issue for those born into OI. Laura told me that when you got old enough to want to start dating, as a girl, you had to just wait around for someone to write to you. The girls in the community all live together and they just sit and they wait and they wait for a guy to write to them. And, you know, your flatmate would go, oh, my God, like, somebody wrote to me out from UK or New Zealand. Oh, they saw my photo on the internal website that's, only viewable by, you know, members. They saw my photo. They saw me on a video or whatever, like that used, used to do videos that go around and, um, and all the girls would try to look good so the guys over the other side see them and then they'd get picked. Tony's wife, Judy, liked to matchmake too and told the girls if she thought their photo looked great in the community photo books that would be sent around, telling them they'd be picked. Judy invented Tinder, I think. Or the young guys would travel together and everyone would know this was to check out girls in different communities who they could then choose to write to. The men, the the youth, had all the control by either travelling and choosing a girl, seeing them in the photo in the book that went around. And on the other side of it, yeah, the girls just spent their whole life waiting for a guy just to write to them. And a girl would never be able to write to a guy, not allowed to start it up. So you just remember this, I remember this feeling of like... (gasps) I met such and such and I'm happy and I'm waiting for like forever for him to write to me. Oh, it's just so um, disempowering. If you weren't chosen, your options were very limited. Yet Laura found that she was always being asked about relationships. And even when she was feeling completely happy in being single, she knew that she wasn't supposed to be. There was a constant implication that the single women were the ones who were lacking. Oh, I don't know how to explain it. There is this... Part of you that can't shake the feeling that they're right. Or I think about all those conversations and I think um, that it's just actually quite tra- traumatising like to have someone constantly tell you that you're, um, it's your worth, your womanly worth is is something or it's not, you know, like... That, to me, is really like it's the core of who we are and it had a value somehow in there. Like it had a value. If you got a guy to even write to you, your womanly value was something. If you didn't, there was something wrong with you. For Laura, who celebrated her 40th birthday during the long process of writing this episode, one of the things that she resents hugely from her time in OI is her limited relationship experience. Could have had that for 15 years. Could have had beautiful connection and relationships for 15 years, you know, like we were deprived. And even just to think about, you know, and it feels weird to say it because the old OI Laura comes in and was like, this is not right to be saying this, but like even just sex, the, the sex and an orgasm in itself is an amazing thing. We will never have it. We'll be limited by, you know, like 15 years of our life of something that all our friends and people in our lives now have this different experience in their life. 
Laura isn't the only person who told me about the difficulties of even having sex after leaving. Whilst ironically there are many members who assume that young people who leave are just doing it so that they can have sex, in actual fact, for some I've spoken to, preparing themselves psychologically to be in a position to do so took many months or even years of work. There's another feeling that will affect Laura forever. That they've taken your womanhood. Even by being in there all that time, like... And it's only, it's only run by men. It's only male leaders. It's Tony. It's all they, it's all run by the men. And at the end of the day, we leave. They don't even speak to you, but they've taken, they've taken a massive part of your, yeah, birthright away, you know? Um, And whether you want to have kids or not, it's the fact that you don't have a choice. And that's the thing I've struggled with is the fact that I've come out the other side at a certain age where it's just society, it's just how it is. I finally have a choice, but then I now biologically don't have a choice. You know, it's like they took that away from you. But then it's, then it's layered with all that time. I felt shit about my womanhood. Like there was, like it was my problem. It was my fault for being 32 and single. There was something wrong with me. And then you, then you spend a few years eh, out trying to deal with the fact that you've lost this thing that you should ha- be able to have. Um, and it's not just, it's not just, you know, having kids. It's like, I feel like I'm an alien when I'm talking to People who talk about, oh, you know, when I was dating that guy when I was like for five years, when I was between 20, when I was 22 and la la. And I'm just like, you know what? I was robbed of that experience. It's relationships. I see, I hear people talking about, oh, we got married at like, you know, whatever, 28. So been together for eight years or something, you know, five years even whatever. And I'm like, wow, I think about when I was 28, where I was at, how long I, this is how my brain works now. Everything is calculated to when I left and where I was at at 28. And you, and that person had five years of being with that person and discovering if they like them or not, and probably being with someone before that to figure out that that person's the right one. And not that life's all about finding someone, but we didn't have that choice. Laura and I got to talking about how those in OI viewed those outside of the church. So firstly, in terms of commitment again, members definitely couldn't have a partial or a sometimes relationship with the church, which would sometimes limit their interactions outside of it. We couldn't even just not go to a meeting. So to talk about having a choice just to go, you know what, I'm a part of this, but I decide not to. That simply, which doesn't happen. You can't even kind of on a Sunday go, oh, I just don't, you know, I'm a bit tired, don't feel like going. You couldn't, you cannot do that. I asked what would happen if she was invited to do something on a Sunday by a friend or colleague. It's the same feeling I had all my life when those sort of things came up. Like, how do I say I can't do something on a Wednesday? How do I explain why I moved to Sydney? How do I explain, you know, why I'm not allowed to date someone outside of the church? Why, how do I explain this and that? Like, you 
just don't explain it. <laughs> so I'm like, you find all these little awkward ways to sort of not mention the truth. So yeah, it was, just, it was hard to always explain your life or not explain it. <laughs> You're also told that people outside aren't really real people, like aren't really, you know, they're not worth anything. They're just not worth having friendships with because they're not worthy. A quote from an ex-member who didn't feel they could talk openly is as follows. Everyone in the world was second rate, and I know that sounds a horrible thing to say, but I literally did not give my friends and my family outside of the church. In my mind, they were second rate. I feel so ashamed about that. I didn't value them in the way that I do now because they weren't God's people. Laura told me about a friend she had met outside of OI before she moved to Canada a girl called Rosie who happened to be a Christian. Some of my chats with Laura were in a flat under the flight path, so please excuse the aircraft noise in the background. Yeah, we've just gone very well. And and so when I moved to Canada, we stayed in touch and um, I was doing something for her, like some storyboarding for a little film she was doing, and I was telling my pastor in Canada about doing this project with her. And he just looked at me and he's like, why are you even friends with her? I'm like, because she's really nice. Um... You know, and he basically just challenged me and said, you know, I don't think you should be friends with her and, like, she's not a part of our why. You know, why are you wasting your time on somebody else? Then there was Angela. Laura and Angela became friends in their mid-teens over a shared love of Bette Midler. When she moved to Melbourne, they stayed in touch via letters, which Laura still has. And while I was in Melbourne, I was challenged about my friendship with her somehow I can't even remember and it's awful I stopped the friendship the thing is I didn't want to cut it off there's no way she's my she's my best friend so I didn't want to cut it off but I knew I had to she was actually a Christian herself and you know but the kind of Christian that could live a life um And she would always say to me, and she knew what I was going through. She knew all the stuff. And she would always say to me, as long as you're happy, as long as you're happy. And she knew that I wasn't happy. So that's why I think about that now. I think she used to say that because she knew I wasn't happy. About a decade later, when Bette Midler was coming to Australia, Angela tracked Laura down. Laura was so pleased and had felt a lot of guilt over letting their friendship go. So she picked up the friendship again, this time back in Sydney. She knew within herself that this wouldn't have OI approval, but she was a stronger person with a few more years of life experience, and the friendship was important to her. One day, she was driving with some friends and saw Angela out of the car window. She called out and waved. Laura was promptly challenged, supposedly for showing off. I found this hard to get my head around and asked her to clarify how she thought greeting her friend could be interpreted as showing off. I have to sort of think, what is it they're thinking? Because to me, I would never think this way. So I'm trying to be someone else's mind. But I think, yeah, she's thinking, you're showing off because you've got friends out of the church. No one else does. Laura was due to meet up with Angela to go record shopping the next week. But this never happened because Angela tragically passed away. Laura was, of course, devastated and felt a lot of anger for being challenged for greeting her friend in what would turn out to be the last time she ever saw her. Come to Sunday, I go to a meeting and I remember telling my pastor's wife at the time, uh, you know, it was after the meeting. I don't think I shared it. I don't even sure if I shared it. (laughs) 
it's weird. You know, anybody, any more announcements? People are talking about random shit. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my friend died, but no one cares. I'm not even going to say it. Like after the meeting, I remember exactly where I was standing and the people around me, I was talking to the pastor's wife and I said, oh, actually like this, you know, my friend died the other day and I'm just really sad. And she just looked at me and said, oh, look, you don't have to grieve over her. She's not even a real friend anyway. She's not a part of the church. And I remember inviting Tony and Judy to lunch at the art gallery and, you know, shouting them, of course, because that's what you do. And I said, oh, look, you know, we've been, had a hard week. Still, like, I'm sad about Ange and I, it's been a really hard week. Tony just had dead eyes and just said, oh, look, I don't know what you're friends with in the first place. She's not worth it. So stop your grief, basically. Stop this, you know, basically, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that here I am telling him something so painful and so real and he had no sympathy, no empathy, nothing. And not and in a way because of who he is, I can understand him not having any empathy or sympathy to her. But I'm a human that he has nurtured and been my spiritual father and been in my life and he doesn't care about how I'm feeling it just doesn't make sense it just yeah so yeah he told me that her life wasn't worth anything Laura showed me a photograph of herself from an OI get-together. I'm at 20-something. Two? 22. Maybe. And it's a dress-up party. It's a dress-up. So, yeah, I'm about 22. It's a dress-up party. I can't even remember what it's for. Something to do with music because we had in my vinyl that was on the, on the wall. Um, so it was at your house? No, it was at a hall. Ah. Someone's birthday, someone's something. I don't know. Or it was a fun night. They used to do fun nights. Where I was dressed up, and I dressed up as Bette Midler, my favourite at the time. The costume is from the film For the Boys. It shows some leg, and it looks great. So I'm wearing like a blazer because it's from the early part of the movie where she's entertaining the troops and whatever World War Two or something like that. Laura felt that one of the older men there was staring at her in a fairly lecherous way. It was gross, and all my girlfriend, you know, my friend, my flatmates were like, "Oh, that's so disgusting." And then afterwards. We even discussed it. We were like, oh, wasn't that creepy the way he was like looking at you? And Because I thought it was just me, like, being paranoid. And they are like, no, that was gross. But all my friends were like, oh, it looks a great. It's a great costume and everything. And then I, it was after the event that I got challenged by a bunch of guys. And then I remember being sitting down and being told that what I wore was inappropriate and blah, blah, blah. And it just made me feel like shit because I was just 22 and at a party having fun and it's not I look at it now because I I think you know oh was it that bad you know and I've lost this photo until now I look at it now and I'm like it's not that bad it's really not that bad but to have an older man tell you that you were inappropriately dressed and you know why did and then it's not just this is the thing with OI it's not just this is what I think you're inappropriately dressed it's 
why did you do that, Laura? What's your motivations? And you go deeper and deeper and you're just like, okay, I'm a slut. Thanks. You know, like until you feel like you got to find this disgusting, terrible part of yourself and offer it up to them. And so then they're happy because they know that now, you know? So it was, anyway, it became a, it was a bit of a laugh in my, <laughs> my flatmates because we were like, that's, we all just thought it was gross that the guys challenged me and they were looking at me that way anyway. But um, I look back on it now and I just think, I hate, this is the stuff I hate about my life. I think, <sighs> you know, I'm just 22. I shouldn't even be at a party with like a bunch of old people. I should be out having a life. But we did what we were told. We go to these things and I'm just being myself. And then I get like, you know, berated for it. And, you know, it's constant. It was constant. So, yeah. Then there were the annual retreats, from which I've already played some audio. They lasted a week, which members, of course, had to take out of annual leave or lose a week's pay over, as well as pay to attend. And you had to go. Oh, you have to go. Trust me, not just retreats. You had to go to every Sunday and every Wednesday meeting. Like, there's no question about have to go. Um, and, and uh, yeah, it was just, instead of being like, you know, two meetings a week on Sunday, Wednesday of your life. It was two or three a day for like five days. It was intense. And most of them were like, you know, they might bring up this new phase of something. I remember once Tony said he's been walking in the garden of Jesus's garden and like some prophecy or whatever. And they might talk about that, but then they'll just spend time just challenging people tough times a day. And then there was like coffees with people and they'd challenge you then and then you go talk about that in a meeting later and oh my God, like they're the worst. Ask anyone who's left, that is the worst. That's the worst. It's just like condensed bullying situation of your life in this one place for five days. Robert spoke to me about attending a retreat one time and letting his pastor know beforehand that he'd bought a Rolls Royce. Something like buying an expensive car without first consulting with members was not an acceptable thing to do. Robert ended up selling the car to buy two less expensive cars, one for himself and the other that he gave to the pastor. In earlier days, when the group had more members, Laura says it probably reached somewhere in the multiple hundreds at her best guess, and the income from the membership allowed it. Some of the young men Tony invited to leadership may have been starting an apprenticeship or have worked a couple of years in a job, and would give it all up to follow this calling. Decades later, when the numbers dwindled, these same men were stood down from leadership. Some, I'm told, were devastated that what they thought was their life's calling had been taken away from them then having to look for other work being completely inexperienced or decades out from any other working experience, sometimes in their 60s. Some of these men were subsequently ousted from the church altogether, as were other members for various reasons. And for them and others who left the church out of choice, Laura says, With all the people that have left, the rate of um, people who've seen a counsellor on medication or suicidal is almost 100%. I've heard this from multiple ex-members, 
about their own experiences as well as the experiences of others they know, though it's difficult to draw a direct line as, of course, mental health issues are prevalent across all areas of society. For Laura herself, a huge after-effect is second-guessing herself with any decision and feeling like she always has to take other people's advice on board, even if their opinion shouldn't really matter. She and others told me that they have also struggled with oversharing and feeling like friendships are too shallow if they don't give all of themselves over to them, which in the world outside of OI can be overwhelming for others. And the only story I had was this really traumatic story for the first couple of months, first even year. So, and also I didn't have the life experience that they had. So when people, you know, my age, particularly in their mid thirties and early thirties, you know, were talking about life, I would just mm-hmm, mm-hmm, not, I had nothing to give them because it felt like in my mind, I can see this big black hole of like, you know, my adult life was just nothing. So that was just really hard. I just felt like I was an alien in this new world for a very, very long time. David worries for those like Laura who were born into OI. And as a reminder, with David and Anne, who spoke to me from Canada, I'm using their words, but not their voices. Especially this last generation of kids, they know nothing else. They've been brought up in this cultish environment, and they're totally brainwashed. And you know, if they leave, they're totally lost. Laura spoke to me about her experience of this process in some detail. So as like, when I think about, you know, a week, two weeks, a month, even six months after leaving, I'm building, I am building relationships with people, but I would say to myself, I'm free. I'm allowed to like love all these people now, which made me excited. I remember saying that to my mum the day I left. I said, mum, now I'm free to like love people properly. So I thought that was simple. I thought it was just like, now I just do this thing, but it wasn't. That day that I left, I lost all the friends that I ever knew, all the family. When I say family, I mean my spiritual family that I ever knew. Um, and they just never spoke to me again. I was grieving every, I was grieving an entire life, like my life. And I look back now, I'm like, how traumatic that was for me to realise that all these people that I loved and I thought loved me don't love me. They're gone. And then I was left with nothing. Everything was a first, everything, even down to going to, I remember going to like a street fair and I was on my own because I had no friends. This is about a year later. And I thought, oh, this is really fun. This is, I'm enjoying it. And then I just felt this overwhelming sense of, oh, I'm feeling joy without any hindrance. And this is foreign. This feeling is foreign. I'm supposed to feel guilty, you know. And then realizing I don't have to feel guilty made me feel really overwhelmed. Then I sort of started to get emotional. And then I'm walking around this street thinking, why? Do I have to feel this way? And when every and I look at other, then I'd look at other people just enjoying their day, and I'm constantly overthinking everything, every step I was taking, processing all this stuff. And then I could, then I sort of felt like my mind and my body separated, and it was like I was watching myself exist in this new world. I would literally, yeah separate myself from my body and I'd feel a bit spun out and it's very overwhelming. 
Um, and that happened often for the first couple of years because everything was new like that. There were other things that Laura was dealing with in the initial period after leaving as well, while she was trying to rebuild her life. The nightmares. Now, they're probably the worst part of, one of the worst parts of leaving. They came fairly quickly after leaving. And when I first left, they were like about, you know, a couple of times a week. And they were very real. They were just in a meeting, people being challenged or whatever. and, And I would just feel this disgusting, nauseous feeling and the worst was like I'd feel like there's like this pressure on my chest, like I was suffocating to the point where most of them I would wake up and I'd be I'd I would actually be heaving and sobbing and wake myself. Sometimes I wake myself up from crying from the dreams. Uh, yeah. So then waking up from those dreams were awful because I just feel really anxious all day, and so I would just keep reliving this nightmare. Basically, I became a bit of a mess and because then there was this feeling after a year or two of like going through the process of the grief and the anger and all this stuff and this building of this new life and feeling all the guilt, all the feelings. I just felt like, what is there to live for? You slowly have dreams along the way of your life and I want to live here and I want to do that. I couldn't ever dream that stuff because that stuff was just given to me where I would live and what I would do and and how my relationships would be. So when I was free to have it, I couldn't vision anything. And because I just felt like I'm just this person who just exists in so much pain right now and I can't see a future, I just felt like there was nothing, you know, to live for. And I just remember walking home from work many times during that period and feeling all that stuff and It was part of that disassociation thing too where I'd be feeling so much pain I would kind of pull myself out of my body and I wanted this horrible feeling I was feeling daily. I just wanted it to end and I would just see the buses on the street and just think if my legs can keep walking. I just wanted to walk in front of a bus. I think that was the point that I just went, I need help. So I did. So I had therapy and that was excellent. She helped me so much, helped me realise that I can actually think for myself. I can, that people aren't actually talking about me all the time, which I thought they were because that's what they do in a way. Everyone has an opinion on you, what you're doing. It's really hard to shake all those aspects that I grew up with. I shake them off and... um, (laughs) not have them a part of my new life. Of everyone I spoke to, Max seemed to me the least troubled by his involvement, perhaps due to leaving young, and he feels he did take some positives from his time with OI. I consider myself to be quite good at introspection, um, but not to the point of inaction, not anymore. Um, and I, I also consider myself to be good at taking on feedback, um, as a result of, I, th- I think I credit OI with that one entirely, um, cause it was drummed into me. 
um, and like pretty good at not being defensive when somebody's telling me something that I need to know. Um, it doesn't mean I'm great at it all the time. You know, I'm not a superhero, but <laughs> I don't think anything is all bad. Um, and there, there are a lot of valuable lessons to be had, uh, even if they're painful at the time. Overall, though. This, this whole experience has left me with a very, very dim view of religion in general, not just OI. In terms of the lasting impact on their lives, David and Anne still have family involved, which continues to make things difficult. I've kept my family or my kids away from the whole environment of OI because I didn't want them sucked into it. I protected them. So, you know, there's sort of been a fallout on all this, which continues. It's been the nemesis of my life, this whole thing with OI. We can't get away from it. It just hangs over us because of the family. Laura says about Tony's level of responsibility for this. I personally feel he must know what's going on, particularly now. Like, I think maybe back you know, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, he had pure intentions and was, you know, pretty hard-nosed but had pure intentions. But what's been discovered and what's gone on, you cannot now, he cannot be in the position he's in now and not take it in and understand that he's ruined people's lives and want to do something about that, but he doesn't want to do anything about it. He knows what he's done and he doesn't want to face it because he's egotistical cannot face it. It would mean unravelling his entire life's work. Here's what David says. I mean, Tony Costas has left a wave of destruction behind him like you wouldn't believe. Broken relationships, broken marriages, suicides. And you know the people that leave, that are asked to leave? They get pretty messed up psychologically. Here's Tony himself, again from the 1998 New Zealand retreat video. Oh, I was no man's idea. It certainly wasn't mine. If it wasn't mine, I don't know which guy's it was. It was God's. It's by the will of God. So, so I don't say things like that to make, you know, to give OI some credence. I say it just simply because it's true, which is also why I can lead OI and take, take that calling and that responsibility seriously but not be burdened by it. It's why I, I don't lose sleep at night over it or anything like that because I know whose idea OI was. And I know who the guarantor of OI is. All I've got to do is fulfil my role, my function, my responsibility, just like you all have to more and more now. And as you do that, then God's having his way. Tony's 70th birthday party was black and white themed, in celebration of his black and white views on things. This isn't seen as problematic in OI. For me, this was an interesting fact to find out after finishing the last episode of season one with some thoughts about the dangers of black and white thinking. Laura told me about a message she remembered being used a lot in the 90s about striving to be pure like a white pot of paint where any tiny drop of black will ruin it. I'm like some a teenager at the time, whatever, you know, and I'm hearing about this white pot thing of pain and like 
not only have like one, like even like if it's a minuscule drop of black that you can't even see, but it gets in there, like that's ruining everything. And I remember thinking, what is that in my life? Like here I am a teenager trying to figure out what's my like tiny speck of like black paint that's going to ruin myself. It was probably liking Bette Midler. I asked Laura how much she thought Tony was motivated by power rather than his belief in what was the truth, which is a question I've thought about a lot since starting this podcast. Here's what she had to say. He has to know he's controlling people now. Um, And because I think before there was a lot of people leaving, yeah, maybe he did just think he's, you know, God's man and it's all, you know, the way he was treating people was fine because people weren't really bucking against it. But once people buck against it, you've got to look at yourself, you know. So if you can't, I think it is control and power. I mean, but I think it comes from the fact that he really was egotistical and like, you know, a power hungry person along the way. And it's just disguised by religion. I asked David and Anne the same question about Tony's motivation. As far as Tony goes, I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether he's delusional, control, insecurity, or whatever. He's like mentally off balance, or whether he believes this himself. It certainly has nothing to do with what love really is. They consider themselves an exclusive group, right? That they're the chosen ones, so to speak. That they're the ones that have it right. So that, as a result, anybody that leaves, they're persona non grata. They're not in the loop anymore, so they don't even bother with them because they're so special. They focus very much internally on each other and getting to know the most intimate details of each other's lives. And that seems to be more of the focus than any kind of outreach to help anyone else. It's just very internal and very almost introverted, you could say, but it's just really bizarre. And Max, I found very generous in his approach. I think... That I think that if he truly believed he was called by God and did all of these things out of um, some kind of what I believe now would be a delusion, then uh, he has my sympathy and um, and my forgiveness. These are all personal opinions, of course, and it's important to remember that psychological assessments should only be done by professionals. But it's also worth examining some of the areas in which leaders of groups like these appear to share commonalities in approach and behaviour. In terms of leaving OI, it's a big decision for anyone to make. As with many similar groups... Members are aware that they will be cut off from a community that they really value if they are to leave, and oftentimes from family members too. If they maintain a relationship, there are things neither will be able to talk about with the other, and this can cause a lot of strain. And making that final decision can be a long and tough journey. One ex-member who spoke to me under condition of anonymity said, quote, I felt like it was risky for me to start thinking and changing my thinking. I felt like... If I'm saying goodbye to this life, then who am I? And can I even live? Can I even be a good person? The thing that terrified me the most when I left OI was that I would have nothing, would just be an empty person with no soul. Like, I honestly thought that I was going to just be a zombie for the rest of my life. End quote. 
And speaking about why they left, they told me, I literally felt like I was suffocating and I couldn't breathe anymore. It was to the point where I wasn't sleeping. I lost a lot of weight. I honestly think something mental happened to me. My brain just crashed. They went on, I literally felt like I was jumping off a cliff. It is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and it'll probably be the hardest thing I ever will do. In her late 20s, Laura managed to do what no one had ever done before and take time to travel by herself to New York, but only by negotiating that she'd get to the Toronto community after three months. She had wanted to spend much longer. I wondered if the time away influenced her thoughts on leaving OI at all. She thinks the freedom didn't give her the perspective to get out because of the Toronto plan. Life always felt like locked in like that. Like, I was like, oh, I can't leave now. Then I'm like, you know, they're organising a house and I'm moving in and how can I let them down? And even if I wanted to. And because I had like three years there and just about every year I wanted to leave, it was just getting worse and worse. And then at this one point I was like, fuck, this got to leave. But then I'm like, I'm stuck in Canada. What do I do? Just leave. Because when you leave, you actually got to leave the house. You got to leave the situation physically. So I was like, how do I do that when I'm kind of felt trapped, which is really dumb when I look back on it because it's like, oh my gosh, you just get a ticket back home, you idiot. Like, but I felt locked in. With Max, there were a few things that had been building up over time. As I was getting older, there was just this larger and larger dichotomy between this is supposed to be good why does it make me so miserable? The, the straw that broke the camel's back was a girl. We came back from Singapore to Melbourne, met someone within a couple of days of starting school, <laughs> didn't try anything, but, you know, got to know her quite well. Was I spent two months just trying to be friends. And then within two weeks of us uh, dating, um, the church has gone, you've got a better relationship with this girl than your own parents, your own family, you have to end it. And I did. And um, it was the sheer disbelief and uh, pain on that girl's face when that happened that finally just made me snap. I asked him what he told this girl exactly. My church has said that my relationship with you is better than that with my parents. I mean, I was naive. I, I, and a little brainwashed, to be honest. Um, like, who says that to a girl? Honestly. <laughs> I asked if he considered this decision to leave OI as a decision to give up a place secured for him in heaven. I don't think I ever really believed in the heaven stuff. Uh, I was giving up my relationship with God. I was giving up a very large social circle. Um, but I did have support in my school friends, so that was good. Some of one or two of whom I'm still in touch with, despite not not 100% believing there was still this part of my identity, I guess, is actually what I was giving up. That was a very, very, very difficult decision to make. Possibly the hardest, well, definitely the hardest I've made at that point. Uh, I may have made one or two more difficult decisions since then, but That was that was life-changing, and I knew it was going to be. Um, so I was very sure when I did it. Unlike the other people I've spoken to who left, Max had a few months of people trying to convince him to change his mind. 
there was probably three months of emails from people going, you're making the wrong choice, you're going to hell, um, this is so selfish, what about God, um, what about your family? And um, I, I've forgotten the details of them, obviously, but those are the impressions that are left. So, And three months of anybody who I used to associate with in the church, um, if I bumped into them, um, trying to convince me that I was wrong. Uh, but it was also the probably the happiest three months of my life up until about I don't know, a couple of years ago when I got married. So because, I mean, I was 18 and or, or very nearly so, and uh, it was just this really freeing thing. As you can imagine, a teenager who's been uh, controlled for a rather long time, it was um, uh, nice to let that rebellious streak that every teenager has loose for a while. For Laura who had always pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable to the OI leadership. The final straw came when she'd returned from living in Toronto. She'd been continuing a long-distance relationship with a guy she'd become close to in Canada, but after much soul-searching, she realised that it wasn't really going to work out. She talked it over with some of her friends and sent him an email to break things off gently. The next meeting, when it came to her turn, Laura shared the details with the group. There was no expectation of a private life in OI, and she shared openly, as was expected of her. And I shared, because you've got to share everything, (laughs) so I shared in front of like 30 people, Um, and we're talking adults and children are in this meeting about that, and and I got challenged for not sending that email to somebody else to read before I sent it to him. She mentioned to the group that she'd discussed it with some of her friends, but no one stepped up to support her. So I turned to my friends and I just stared at them because I saw two of my friends sitting next to each other and I'd chatted to both of them at the retreat and they were both very encouraging, particularly one of them. She said nothing. The other one actually piped up and said to me, well, Laura, you did talk about it, but you didn't, you know, you weren't open enough or, you know, we felt you weren't being real. The reason she said that had she disagreed and said the truth, she knows the truth of what I said to her at that retreat, she would have had to be in that moment saying, Tony, what you've just said then is not true. But no one can do that to Tony. It wasn't the expectation that she send around a personal email about her choice to end a relationship for feedback from the group that concerned Laura. It was the accusation that she had any untoward motivation in neglecting to do so when she knew that the idea had just never occurred to her. From your point of view and anyone's point of view, it seems silly for me to even defend and deconstruct going, oh, no, there was no – because there is no right. They have no right anyway. Like, But in my, in my mind then I still – and sometimes when I'm explaining it, I feel like I'm still going, no, but I really had pure motives. I didn't, you know, deliberately not send it to anyone. Ironically, one of the motives that was levelled at Laura by one of the men was that she was a man-chaser. In that last meeting when he says that to me, I'm like, well, you put me in this place. I can't date outside the church. There is no other humans, male humans in the church. Like, just no one existed. Like, no one actually existed. Like, there was no man left. So how am I supposed to feel? Yeah, shit, because I grew up in this church maybe. <laughs> like, not shit in myself. <laughs> like, but, it, but they wanted to break me down. The men wanted to break me down for me to sit there and go, I feel like a shitty woman that I'm not good enough 
and I'm desperate for a man. They wanted me to say, I desperately want a guy. Listening to Laura's account of the types of accusations that she was facing and the way she felt that she was meant to respond made me think of the game in Synanon again from episode one of this season. I knew myself, this is why this is my last meeting, I knew myself I did nothing wrong, but I knew for those 30 people and those men staring at me that they didn't believe that. The community that Laura was in for her final meeting was in Sydney, and at the time, as Laura mentioned, that community involved Tony himself. Tony was the leader of that community, and Paul, who is a leader as well, was also in that community. After Paul had just grilled me about not wanting scrutiny about what I've written in this letter to this guy, Tony said to me, if you can't understand what we're trying to say to you, that you wanted to hide what you're saying and you didn't want scrutiny on your life, you didn't want to be open with us, if you can't understand that, then you obviously don't have a relationship with Jesus. And to me, that was the moment I thought, I'm out. Oh, my God, Sarah. I thought, how does it come down to this? How do I, how does my whole 32 years of devotion to Tony, how does he tell me now that I don't have a relationship with Jesus because of me not agreeing with this lie that they're telling me? That's it. And the sad thing is, too, that my mum sat there and didn't say a word, even though she knew the truth and she disagreed with Tony. She disagreed with, you know, the girls. And she was the one who actually for weeks was encouraging me to write this letter too. So she knew all about it, but she just felt like she felt like she couldn't stand up to Tony. But in fact, the only thing she did say was that she agreed with Tony by saying, yeah, there's probably something for Laura to see in this, you know, something like that. But she remembers feeling anxious in that meeting and angry and wanting to protect me. She's my mother. She loves me more than any anything. And she's the one person in my life that loves me the most. And in that moment in time when she knew that I was being abused right there and then, sitting right next to me, she couldn't speak. She couldn't defend me. And all she could do was even kind of agree with Tony. This is why we have nightmares. It's a situation like that, where mum wants to save her child from pain and she can't, her hands are tied. Like, if that's not a living nightmare, I don't know what is. And to sit there and have people just abuse me and no one defend me, not even my mother, how does that feel? It's the worst. And the thing is, I was the only person telling the truth there. The only person. The whole meeting. And in the same meeting, he told everybody, Tony told everybody, that about giving financially, that he knows the people who are not giving enough um, and and should be giving more and... Basically, the people who aren't giving enough, it's a reflection of their relationship with Jesus by 
by the actually by how much they give financially and you and he's like you know who you are he said and I was like funny thing was I had like an envelope full of cash like I don't know like 500 bucks or something to give to some of it and I was like I'm just gonna hold on to that because I know I'm never coming back (laughs) at the point that Laura wrote the letter to the community telling them that she was leaving the main thing that had been keeping her there was her mother still being in when Laura finally made her decision in spite of this about a day or two later, she just decided to leave after almost 40 years there. She just decided to leave. So in a way, I think, yeah, the strength I had to leave and leave even thinking I was leaving my mum there, I'm glad I did it because I don't think mum would have left had I not left. I think in a way she probably just feels guilty that it wasn't the other way around, you know, but, you know, at least it worked out. <laughs> Over the decades, Laura's mother had become best friends with Tony's wife, Judy, and decided to speak with her first before handing in her letter breaking with the group. Mum was just very straight with her and then just said, you know, oh, it's sad because when I leave right now, I'll probably never see you again. Like, they've been friends for 40 years. Mum was like, I know. She's like, oh, don't be silly, don't be silly. And Mum was just like, well, I I just know that as a fact. You won't be allowed to. Not that she, yes, may want to, because she's going, don't be silly, of course we will. But Mum was like, but you know you won't be allowed to. They're just like, oh, I don't know. Mum's never seen her since. Mum means nothing to her now. Like, she really does. Like, I don't think even Judy would even feel anything anymore, to be honest, because they really don't care about people outside. I asked Laura how she thought they could present such a community for each other, but then be able to switch that supposed care off so immediately. I know, that's the one thing I'd like to ask him, um, Tony, is that how can you say... I should look at you as a father more than my own father, you know, or, or any of the leaders like that because I was told that, you know, all the men leaders were, because my dad's so bad, you know, they're more your father than your real father. How could you say that to a child and a teen and an adult? Then yet, innocent letter going, oh, you know, I don't really feel like to come to meetings anymore because I don't think there's much love here. Boom, never, ever speak to me, not even, like, reply to my email. Like, just... How do you just disconnect like that when you claim to be like a father or you claim to love? Laura ran into a leader and his wife and sister in Melbourne once and tried to say hello repeatedly but was completely ignored. When Laura was in the group, there was a website that only members could access and as soon as someone left, their access was revoked. On top of this... When I was in, if someone had left, there's a photograph of like you and your friends, um, and with your names, and then if your friend left, their name would be blacked out, like literally blacked out. I asked Laura what her parents felt about having put their children through this experience. That's hard. Um, that's My mum particularly feels really bad about that, guilty about that. And I think it's something that's really just hard. It's hard to get over because – and I, I feel the pain for my mum because – I know how much it's affected me. I know mum knows that. Mm. Then I know how much this is affecting her. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, feels like this ever, never ending cycle of pain and guilt and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And there's nothing they can do about it. You know, like they thought they were doing the right thing. Mm. And it's the only way you can reason it is that, you know what? It's, you can't blame them because they thought they were being, like of all things, I thought they were being godly. They thought they would be doing a good thing. Like it's not like they were thinking they were doing anything wrong. They thought they were doing something 
on the positive side of life than the negative side. So, so, so can you, you know, you can't really feel bad about that, <laughs> but it's hard for me because when I do feel a bit angry and annoyed, I hate that feeling. Cause I'm like, I can't, I can't. So I get trapped in my own emotions of like, I can't be angry at my parents because they didn't really know because they were just brainwashed. As I've gotten to know Laura, I've been completely amazed at her attitude to life and the strength she found within herself to make it what she wanted it to be, in spite of the years she feels she wasted. She works in media, hangs out in Sydney's inner west, and lives a life very much like my own. It's easy to wonder whether I would have been able to find it within myself to do what she's done. (laughs) After everything we've talked about, all the pain and all the nightmares I have still of my life in the pain of leaving the trauma of building a new life. It's still nothing's better than this life. You know, like I would still like do all of that. Like I wish that never happened to me, but I'd still do all of that to have this life now. Cause this life now is so beautiful. Us who have left have this heightened sense of like joy in moments. It's probably the silver lining is that, I think life is quite amazing right now. So it's like, yeah, it's pretty good. Another ex-member told me, quote, Now in my life, I just feel so excited about so many things. I get so excited that I have the freedom to do them. It's just such an exhilarating feeling because I never had that when I was growing up. For Laura and her father, David and Anne, and others who've gone through these experiences, speaking out is tough. There were a number of people who wanted to speak out, but didn't feel like they could, for various reasons. Some spoke with me off the record, helping to corroborate the stories I'm sharing with you, and some spoke on the record, then changed their minds, which I entirely respect. David says, The thing is, if you leave a lie... Well, where do you go to? Who do you talk to about this? Most people would be embarrassed just relaying what happened. You know, anybody that would question would think they were nuts for putting up with this. That's something that strikes me more and more in conducting the research for this podcast. Writing members off as being nuts for their involvement with a cult is often missing an opportunity to examine what it is that makes people look to such groups for answers and what it is about the groups that can be so seductive and damaging. It can also minimise the danger that this very thing could happen to someone you know and care about. As David and Anne say, It's a crazy, convoluted, mixed-up world with information overload, and people are looking for things, are looking for answers. They're looking for causes to grasp onto. Everybody has to have a cause, you know. No matter what it is, they throw themselves into it. Well, and they're looking for leaders too, right? They're looking for leaders. And because people are confused, there's just too much to absorb out there. So when a guy like that comes along and gives them answers and projects themselves with confidence, people are drawn towards that. A couple of the ex-members I've spoken to have minimised the dangers involved with OI as they can see it's not as dangerous as many of the cults they may have read about or that we've covered in this podcast. But others point out the potential issues involved with these levels of unquestioning devotion. 
Some had heard members speak of being ready to walk off a cliff or drink poison if Tony had asked them to. From Tony's outreach letters series in 1988-89... to The sheep which knows its shepherd's voice and follows him is secure and at rest. When the shepherd leads, the sheep readily follows. Where the shepherd leads, the sheep trustingly goes. Its fulfilment is in being a submitted follower, and if that should lead to slaughter, so be it. Laura and I talked about the future of Outreach International. If they weren't bringing new members in and people kept leaving, what options were there for its continuation? People are a little bit older than me, so we've got kids that are like 18, getting into an age of wanting to date. They pretty much only got cousins to choose from, so I just don't think they thought that one through. We spoke about this before OI's website went public, and Laura has since heard mention of a new era for the church known as the gathering or the harvesting. There's also a lot more talk of prophecies lately, coming to various OI members on different subjects. In the time since Laura and I started talking early last year, Tony's son Simon has now fully taken over the OI leadership, and perhaps it's he who pushed for the website to have a public-facing presence after all these years. I've heard rumours that numbers are currently under 200, which could be a problem if the church is to survive. I've also heard there are fewer retreats held now. Tony's two sons-in-law, Toby and Paul, are both leaders within the church, and all but one of the other leaders are related by marriage in at least an extended way, keeping much of the leadership within the family now that many former leaders have been ousted. I've been given the names of 27 male leaders who have come and gone in total, and though one or two did leave leadership and OI by choice, I'm told that the rest would never have chosen to stand down themselves from this calling. Simon Costas has an entry on the current website, quote, For a number of years early on, we owned church properties, constructed a large conference facility with our own labour, ran a residential training program, and even had our own school. Then, later, we sold it all, and in the 1990s scattered around the world in response to God's direction, only, years later, to gather together again in church communities. Apart from him, we often do not know why we are doing what we are currently doing, but nor do we need to, for simply being with God is everything. All we need to know is what we are doing is in response to God. End quote. Laura thinks Tony's also made such a point about building up a following around himself personally, that Simon will have some struggles in his leadership. And here's the one everyone really comes back to following when you think about it. Like, people have issues with leaders and stuff, but it's always, oh, but Tony, this and that. So I think when he's physically gone, there's going to be a change as well. Checking back on the website in October 2018, as I prepared to finally release this episode, there was an update with a leadership page showing Simon Costas at the top and five other male leaders, including Toby and Paul, underneath him, with pictures but no information about their qualifications or background. There is an insights page with words that aren't from Tony, but Simon is definitely keeping to some of Tony's practices. Quote, It does cost us to respond to God and do his will. It is meant to, for it is an expression of our love for him. God does not hide or minimize that price, and we should not pretend that it does not exist, 
for it is a beautiful component of any love relationship to freely and joyfully make a sacrifice for the one you love. End quote. And it seems that Simon had a recent calling to go to Poland for five and a half weeks to live by faith with Paul. He doesn't seem sure as to why God sent him there. Quote, in responding to God and going to Poland simply because I believed that was what he wanted me to do, I had taken the first faith step. But there were many more to follow, as, together, Paul and I learned to rest and allow God to guide us where and when he wanted, simply for the privilege of being with him. He took us to people in a particular Catholic community, and, through various situations and circumstances, showed me what it means and what it takes to really live by faith. End quote. It's possible that under a different leadership, and one that allows questions, examines issues, and looks to improve rather than stamp its authority, many of the problems that past members had with OI could be minimised. These are Tony Costas's own words from Chapter 7, Book 3 of the Building with God series, published in 1985. Selfless leadership is rare, even among Christians. Rather more common is the kind which is motivated by selfish ambition, and which we so often see displayed in the world around us. Common it may be, but selfish ambition is a powerful and dangerous force for evil, and it has absolutely no place in the church, as Jesus himself had to point out to his disciples. It's one thing to be called into a position of leadership, but it's quite another to be a godly leader. Any man who seeks and uses leadership of any kind for self-gain is not worthy of it. In fact, anyone who is at all ambitious for leadership or authority in the church is open to question. Such positions are all too easily abused and misused to be entrusted to people with doubtful motives. As I mentioned earlier, there are many reasons it can be tough for ex-members to speak out. Laura completely understood these and had her own battles about whether to speak to me on the record or off the record, but she thought it was telling that so many people would only speak to me off the record. She considered it a continued form of control, that those who are out can have such a fear of losing relationships with those who are still in. I want to add in here that I'm hugely grateful to those who spoke to me off the record too, who helped give me a lot of context and understanding of the group. I have no judgment at all. Here's Laura. It's scary to speak out because the control that Tony and the church has over all of us, in and out, and yeah, even people out, it's really, you know, it's controlling and it's, it's, you still live in fear even when you're, you've made a choice to be away from this thing. But, and I know the stigma, so I know I've been on the inside and now I'm on the outside, so I've got the perspective. I know what people are going to think when they hear this and when they think Laura's spoken out against us. It's not that. It's not that at all. Like, I love all the people in and I want them to be free. So... Even if doing this means they hate me, it's worth it. It's worth it because if even just one person listens to it and realises that, you know, they can also have this and it's okay. And if they decide to leave, I'd be so happy. (laughs) So, yeah, 
I'm basically risking a whole lot of friendships doing this. <laughs> but it's worth it if they end up understanding where I'm coming from and that they get to be free. It's a big risk for Laura. I'm told it's likely that this podcast, if it's heard by current OI members, will be framed as Satan trying to undermine the good work that God has done through Tony. I asked Laura if there was anything else she wanted to say that she felt was important. Talking to you, I want people who are in, if they listen to it, I want them to think, because I know lots of people question, you know, when they're in, and we all do before we leave, and a lot of people just do in, and I want them to know that they can live this free, beautiful life outside. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it's worth it. Today, I'll leave you with the full poem that Laura wrote a couple of years after leaving OI. You heard the beginning of it at the start of part one, and now you can listen to it with a lot more context about what it was inspired by. We are the walking wounded. You can't see our scars anymore. We look normal, we look fine, but the scars you left are on our mind. Another day, another long, long day. I'm inside, I'm outside, but either way, you left me alone. When all the time you fed a lie that I believed. He looked shiny and he looked new, like he had some kind of glow. We were fed every word he said like it was gold. How was I to know that in the end we're left alone? She questioned, he questioned, everybody's leaving. But I'll stay to the end of day because here's all I know to believe in. If I were to go to the other side, I'd be travelling into darkness. Little did I know it was more like emptiness. There came a day when I sat and took what was rightfully mine, my heart, my soul, my life, my mind. I thought he was freedom, that out there I would lose my way, but on the outside I have found that they are the ones walking away. Now I have my life, it is my own, but it's like a carnival of fear. I don't know what is real or to trust, all I know is I must. Because there's something telling me to keep on going. Open your eyes, this life is real. But I'm like a baby, learning to talk, learning to walk, learning how to feel. Someday, I hope and pray, this life I'll know is real. You left us in this life, fighting for what is ours. You've taken our life, you've taken our heart, but one thing remains, the truth is the truth. small postscript to this episode, which is that just before part one was released last Wednesday, I checked back on the Outreach International website for any final updates. Email addresses for Simon and the other leaders had been added to the site, which was a new development, so I wrote to Simon with a few questions and to offer him the chance to respond to the concerns of ex-members. I'll be sure to update you if I hear anything back. A very special thanks to Laura, Robert, David, Anne, Max, 
and all of the other people who spoke to me anonymously as well, for their generous and brave contributions to this episode. There is an online support group that's been created specifically for XOI members. If you were a part of Outreach International and would like to be involved with the support group, please write to me at ltaspod at gmail.com or via the Let's Talk About Sects Facebook or Twitter pages, and I'll point you in the right direction to find it. Laura has a project based on her many years of finding notes in the street. We actually originally met at her first Sydney exhibition, and it was a fascinating peek into Anonymous Lives. You can find her website and Instagram by searching for Found by Laura. A thanks to our Canadian voice actors too, Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold and Bonnie Lee from Writing About Crime. Please listen out after the credits for promos for their excellent independent podcasts. If you have been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. Voice work by Robin Warder, Bonnie Lee and Joe Gould. My information sources, which are fewer than usual, are listed on our website at ltaspod.com where you can find links on how to support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, merchandise, or donation. And do please mention the show to a friend if you feel they might appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and hope you'll join me again next episode. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week... I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. I'm Bonnie Lee, the host of Writing About Crime a Canadian true crime podcast that looks for the story behind criminal cases. The people, the places, and the events that join together to create a narrative, not a scoop. I am not reading you the news. I am writing about crime. I hope you'll join me on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 